Good morning, Mendocino County and beyond. This is Johanna Wild Oak. Welcome to Wild Oak Living, the program about living, working, and and having fun sustainably in Mendocino <laughs> County and beyond. That comes to you every other Thursday from 9 until 10 a.m. It's been a while since I've been on the air, um, and uh, I just want to spend a couple of minutes catching up with you. But let me know. Let, let me t- let me let you know that uh, in a couple of minutes after this little introduction, I'm going to be speaking with Janet Jacobson, who is a professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at Columbia's Barnard College. And we're going to be discussing her latest book, The Sex Obsession. You're going to want to stay tuned in for that one. It's going to be a really interesting discussion. First, let me let you know, let me thank you to everyone who's been inquiring about my about my state of health, I've, I've been out for a few weeks, but I'm better now and I'm back and I'm really happy about that. Um, I, I have a, a slightly, a, a tiny adventure story to tell, uh, part of my health journey these last couple of weeks, last, actually last several weeks, uh, includes um, having been evacuated as one of the 55 people who were evacuated by ambulance from the St. Helena hospital on the morning that sunday morning when the glass fire started that was quite an adventure but it was also a very reassuring thing in the sense that it was really nice to see how ambulances and helicopters from all over the bay area stepped up and evacuated that little country hospital in saint helena and got us all out of there safely when the glass fire started so there's one more reason yet again to be grateful to all the firefighters and all the first responders that that always seem to step up whenever a fire or other emergency seems to happen. And that actually uh, brings me to the uh, first announcement that I wanted to make, uh, and that is um, there is a, a group that's forming. Let me just pull up this announcement. There's a group that's forming, uh, and they're calling themselves the... Um, CRN, COVID Response Network and Coast Resilience Network. And they're currently fundraising to, to form this group. It's, it's, a, I think it looks like it's a private initiative or, or let's put it this way. It's an initiative of, of citizens of the coast and they're starting up this, this network. And, uh, if you would like to find out more about that or if you're interested in donating to them, um, you can find out more by going to covidresponsenetwork.net. That's covidresponsenetwork.net. Uh, and then the other announcement that I wanted to make before we get started with our interview is that Mendocino County is hosting a local assistance center for residents impacted by the Oak Fire and by the August Complex Fire, that big fire burning you know to the area around Covalo uh, and the um, the information about that is that this is happening let me just see uh, the county of Venezuela will host two local assistance centers in order to provide services and resources to individuals families and businesses impacted by the oak and August complex complex fire 
The LAC, the Local Assistance Center, provides a single location where those impacted by the fire can access available disaster assistance programs and services. This multi-agency event will include representatives from local and federal agencies, nonprofit agencies, and other support services. Mendocino County will ho host this uh, Local Assistance Center in Willits on Monday, October 26th, and in Covalo on Wednesday, October 28th. And each time it's going to be from 2 p.m. to 6 p.m. Uh, so again, 28th at 2 p.m. is at the Round Valley Elementary School at 76280 uh, High School Street in Covalo. Uh, the local assistance centers will have representatives from county departments, including disaster recovery, planning and building, health and human services, cannabis program, environmental health, and they're going to have community partners from North Coast Opportunities and many more. Uh, FEMA representatives were also going to be on the site, uh, on site at the Willits Library uh, from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. on October 26th. So that day from the morning until the evening, FEMA is going to be on site. And uh, everyone's asked, of course, to wear a mask when you show up there and to practice social distancing guidelines, Provide hand, and they're going to provide hand sanitizers, and they're going to conduct health screenings. For more information about this event, you can call 234-6303. That's 234-6303. And now I would like to... Um, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm trying to switch between windows on my tiny little phone here so that I can bring you all this, inform all this information and I need to go back to another little window on my tiny phone here uh, so, that, um, so that I can talk to you about what I'm about to talk to you about and if you would just please give me a second to do that. There we go. Okay. <laughs> So, again, let me let you know, this is Johanna Wildock. You are listening to Wildock Living here on Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. And today I'm very happy and proud to welcome Janet Jacobson. She is a professor of women's... Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> She's a professor of women's gender and sexuality studies at Columbia's uh, Barnard College. And she has uh, written several books. Um, the one that we're going to be talking about today is, and here again, I'm, I'm switching between, between many little windows here. Uh, I had a power outage this morning. All of this was, was nicely lined up on my very large screen. And Anna Jacobson is, a, as I said, a Clareto Professor of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Barnard College at Columbia University. Uh, and as I said, she's the author of several books. She's also currently uh, a principal investigator uh, for the Gender Justice and Neoliberal Transformation Working Group, which is a collaboration of scholars that work transnationally on questions of gender justice in the contemporary world. It's also spon sponsored by the Barnard Center for Research on Women. And she has held, uh, Professor Jacobson has held fellowships from the American Association of University Women, the Udall Center for Public Policy at the University of Arizona, the Center for the Humanities at Wesleyan University, and the Center for Study uh, of Values in Public Life at Harvard Divinity School. Oh, I've had guests from Harvard Divinity School on mm. before. She has taught at visiting as a visiting professor at Wesleyan uh, 
university and Harvard University, and uh, again, and, and before entering uh, uh, um, the academic, academic life, she was a policy analyst and organizer in Washington, D.C. So uh, an, an illustrious and very, very interesting history and background. Welcome again, Professor Jacobson, for, to, for, for being on to be in Wild Oak Living this morning. I'm so happy to have you. Well, and I'm happy to be here, Johanna. I'm also happy to hear that uh, your health has recovered, and it seems that the fires have uh, diminished, at least in your area. So, uh, all in all, it's a, a morning that we can be glad about. <laughs> That's right. And we are, t- and, and it's, uh, you know, we haven't had any rains yet to put out the fires. We had a little bit of sprinkling that has washed some of the ashes out of the air. So that's provided some relief, but we still have hazy air and we're still dealing with it. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping, I'm praying for rain really, really soon. I hope so too. So now we're going to talk about this this book that has this uh, this captivating title, <laughs> the sex <laughs> the sex obsession, perversity and possibility in American politics and working uh, uh, and 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 you know I have to tell you when uh, Peter Bermudez uh, from Gail uh, Leander Publishing uh, um, sent me your book and sent me the write up about your book. Uh, with, you know, wondering whether I would want to interview you. And Peter has sent me many, many interesting guests that I've featured here on Wild Art Living. Um, and and the reason I feature them is not because Peter sends them to me, but because, you know, they're, they're interesting topics and interesting mm. people uh, with information that I would like to share. And and uh, when I saw the title of your book, uh, you know, I, I like many people, I, I went, you know, oh, I wonder what this is about. Um, <laughs> And so I think we can probably talk about your entire book by just talking about every word in that title, right? Yes. Sex, that. obsession, perversity, and possibility, and American politics. <laughs> that, that, that's absolutely true. And, and they do, um, uh, the, the press and university presses in particular, encourage you to choose the words as carefully as the way they fit together in part because of the ways in which... Um, uh, you know, large database searches work so that your book will come up for people who are potentially interested. So, indeed, each word is significant. And and um, I also hope, and I think you're alluding to this, the, the big argument of the book is uh, that the common sense of American politics it often leads us astray and that if we uh, put things together in a different way, we might be able to have a different political life. And and so the, the title, the perversity and possibility part of it is trying to indicate, oh, there's something different going on than the usual story that we hear. Yes, and um, I, I, I think that's probably, well, maybe I'll save, I, I was going to qu- ask you a question about the word perversity, but I think I'll save that because I'd like to maybe uh, f- um, draw a slightly larger frame before we get into that um i'd like to i, I mean we've learned already from your background you know gender study uh, it seems like a logical logical sorry about my dog she's she barks i'm a airplanes. dog lover so I'm she barks at airplanes <laughs> <laughs> through the window <laughs> i'm trying to keep her calm next to me but when she sees an airplane she goes nuts um so um I, i'd like i'd like to find out a bit more about how your background uh, led you to this topic and, and, and why, I mean, obviously choosing to write a book about something is a big commitment. So, so that, so this particular topic, you know, the, the topic of sex and, and gender 
obviously fits into your background in terms of what you've done before. But what did you, what what inspired you to write particularly about this topic? That those topics in the book. Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I had been a director of the Barnard Center for Research on Women um, at Barnard College for many years and stepped down in uh, 2015 and so was uh, thinking about uh, reviving um, my research life after the administrative work. And um, of course, at that time, I stepped down in, in July of uh, 2015. So the uh, 2016 elections had already started. And my training, actually, my PhD is in religious ethics, and I have uh, for a long time um, been focused on women's gender and sexuality studies. And I realized that these two topics were going to be uh, central to the story of the 2016 elections. And as it turned out to uh, the four years that have followed on, on those elections. And so I thought perhaps I would have something to offer in uh, thinking about uh, these questions that uh, drive a lot of American politics, but that are often frozen into uh, narratives that, um, you know, are repeated across the political spectrum. I look at liberal publications and conservative publications and um, about the ways in which religion and gender and sexuality uh, relate to each other in, in political terms. So I thought maybe I could offer something that would break through some of the, that and ultimately uh, contribute to what I think many people hope will be uh, uh, opening or an unsticking of, a, of American political life. What did, what did you hope to achieve? What did you hope people would take away from your book? Yeah, um, s sort of several things. Um, uh, first of all, um, to shift the common sense. The common sense story is one in which um, uh, uh, sexual conservatism and what I call the sex obsession of American public life is driven um, mostly by religious conservatism. And, and that story narrows political possibility in a couple of different ways. Um, for one thing, it means that uh, the only time that religion is taken seriously is when it's about sexuality and all kinds of other um, uh, interests for people who have religious commitments, including relevant to your show, the environment, um, questions of war and peace, questions of immigration. Many religious um, organizations are dedicated to um, supporting immigrants and refugees, um, questions of, of labor. The, you know, I talk a little bit about interfaith worker center networks in the U.S. And, um, you know, all that religious commitment disappears into this uh, story about, about uh, uh, religion being focused on gender and sexuality. Um, and on the other side of that, that means that often progressive movements, movements for social justice are a little hesitant to take up either religion or questions of gender and sexuality, even though I argue throughout the book that, um, you know, gender and sex uh, have an important role to play in creating sexual justice uh, and social justice more broadly in the United States. Um, I'm particularly curious ab ab about the, the word obsession. I mean, you already mentioned, you know, that that one of one of the focus areas of your book is this obsession with with sex and its connection with religion. With, with religion, but I, I want to explore that word obsession a bit more. Like, talk talk, talk to us about how what you view as 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 obsession. Well, I, I, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, uh, Mm -hmm. Oh, I was just going to mention, you know, one of one of the one of the stories uh, in in the write ups about your books is about uh, Kennedy and Nixon, mm -hmm. and also the the uh, the 
the fact that that uh, some of the symbols uh, of of conservatism and, and the religious right happen to be men, you know, who've been divorced three three times and and who who happen to who happen to have had stories surrounding them of all kinds of extramarital affairs. Uh, so, so you know, not exactly the paradigm of of what you would consider you know, uh, a, a conservative uh, religious person. <laughs> right. But so, so I'm, I'm, you know, it, with that in mind, you know, I'm wondering if we could explore the whole idea of, of obsession a bit. Yeah. So um, uh, I'm going to take a step back and then come to the Kennedy Nixon and, and um, uh, sexual politics and, and then other uh, prominent political figures and um, say this, one of the questions about American politics is this, we live in a country that values freedom very highly, supposedly. I mean, this is the claim of, uh, again, across the political spectrum, liberal publications, uh, conservative publications would say that freedom is a central American value. And yet when it comes to gender and sexuality, freedom is um, not even talked about. It's not that there are people who value sexual freedom. Like there, there is no pol politician in mainstream politics in the U.S. today who would say, I am for sexual freedom. Right. Um, and the question is, why? Why not when we value freedom in ways that are destructive to each other, certainly around, you know, questions of guns and destructive to the world, certainly around questions of, of the environment. And, wearing and so masks. Right. Questions of wearing masks. Exactly. So what is it? The sex obsession is to ask, what is it about gender and sexuality that this is the one place where we cannot, um, you know, uh, even talk about in mainstream po political life? Uh, this central American value. And then the other thing is, and why care? In other words, it's one thing to think about whatever your individual sexual ethics are. Many people um, have, you know, sexual values and they, they vary greatly. Some people, you know, are deeply committed to um, the nuclear family. Other people are committed to extended family formations. Other people are committed to what I call sexual cultures, which are communities that develop around um, uh, sexual practice. And uh, one of the examples here are the ways in which um, uh, the gay community came together around caring for people with AIDS, right? The, that sense that a community, and we see this again in, in the pandemic where people are thrown back on their nuclear families and they realize they need something more, a pod or a quarantine or, you know, some broader community in order to support their lives. Um, and why is that not just a moment for freedom? You know, why are we not just saying, yes, what, what other people do doesn't matter as much as what um, uh, I do as an individual and I will build a life that, that is, uh, reflects my values. Um, and that then created for me an understanding that there's a difference between sexual politics um, and individual sexual ethics. And we see split strangely again on the right where, um, you know, we see a dedication to a conservative sexual politics about other people that is not necessarily shared by the politicians who represent this. And I mean, not just Donald Trump, but historically, uh, we have not um, seen that the promoters of family values are necessarily people who in their individual sexual ethics and sexual lives uh, reflect what they are promoting as a politics. Um, and um, where that leads is very interesting because it says that there's something about how people understand the polity, um, in this case, the United States, the nation um, that is tied to gender and sexuality. Uh, and so I started to think very differently about what the issues are, because it's not really about 
how individuals live their lives. And we see this in terms of indicators of uh, sexual practice between like the red states and the blue states where, you know, you see all kinds of indicators that people do pretty much similar things, um, you know, sale of pornography, sale of sex toys, whatever it is that indicates sexual practice that doesn't vary that much. But laws vary a lot um, in terms of gender and sexuality. And that is the difference that I was trying to come to understand and, and, and to explain. And one, one of the things that, that, I mean, there are just a million things that I would love to talk about. And, and so I'm, I, if I'm jumping around a bit, forgive me, but I, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm compelled to, 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 um, I was just going to ask you about something and it's not as, and trying to explain what I was going to ask, what I was going to ask has escaped me, but there's, there's a ton of other things that, that I can ask you about. And one of them is, um, you mentioned progress and you mentioned, uh, you know, how social movements, uh, um, in, in your book, you talk about how social, how we, we generally assume that social movements, you know, move forward and that that always represents uh, progress. But as we've seen, for example, you know, with uh, in the last four years, that's something that has moved forward. So, for example, um, you know, marriage equality. Let's just take that for an example. You know, it 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 moves it 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 gets it gets established, and we sort of assume we've reached a milestone, and from there we move forward. And then we've seen in the last four years how easy it is to actually move backwards again. Um, yeah, and and one of the things that I I came to understand is that uh, uh, maybe we need to tell a different story about what's happening vis-a-vis -vis social change. That maybe we're going around in circles. Um, yeah, that's uh, actually that was my question. I was going, you know, because you have this very interesting discussion talking about how um, the 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 drivers of change and and the assumptions that we that we that we base. Uh, you know the activities that lead to change on often incorporate some of the some of the uh stereo sexual stereotypes and and gender stereotypes uh that that have led to the need for change in the first place and so it's kind of a a circular kind of self-perpetuating thing right yes exactly you you just explained that very well that that what i became interested in is 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 this sense that um, we move forward and back, but also that that change seemed to be happening a lot. So in my lifetime, I was born in 1960. So um, although I wasn't, you know, politically aware as a as a child, certainly the effects of the civil rights movement and um, uh, all that came out of that in the 1970s with you know uh, gay rights, gender and sexuality, with um, even in 1965 the expansion of of immigration in in the United States. This felt like these series of openings. Um, and so I, uh, you know, had a sense of, of the world, you know, changing for the better in the progress narrative. And yet, here we find ourselves um, uh, in 2020. And we're still talking about basic things that I understood to have been settled when I was a child. Um, and especially voting rights, I think is just a primary example here where uh, mm -hmm. um, the United States was supposedly founded on, um, you know, a sense of democracy. And yes, at that time, it was a very narrow sense of who could vote, men, white men, property men. Um, and, um, but that the narrative was, well, this expanded. So if things, you know, expanded where we, um, you know, had the 15th Amendment to allow for 
uh, voting without regard to race, and then the 19th Amendment to allow for voting without regard to gender, why did we need the Voting Rights Act in the 1960s? And if we had the Voting Rights Act in the 1960s, why are we having these battles about voting rights uh, uh, in 2020? And that made me think that there was something different happening. Um, and I tried to, I started to think about the ways in which this very narrative, the narrative that democracy expands, could play into um, a sense that uh, held hierarchy in place. And that's a counterintuitive claim, right? That the narrative of how democracy expands holds in place uh, existing hierarchies. And yet, one of the things I found in looking at the Supreme Court is that we tend to see it as a site where democracy expands. These um, uh, important decisions like the Obergefell gay marriage decision in 2015, when I was just starting my research, where it felt like, oh, things are really opening up. We have, you know, civil rights uh, for African-Americans. We now have a sense of, you know, uh, gender rights uh, led by uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And now we have this opening around gay rights. And that in fact, what that can cover over is the way the Supreme Court has consistently been over the course of the centuries a site to hold hierarchies in place. Um, and that's a really important conversation because, you know, when we talk about, as apparently, um, you know, uh, Joe Biden will suggest uh, uh, around the question of expanding the Supreme Court, when we talk about the court, we need to be able to talk about both things at the same time, the ways in which it has been a site for the expansion of rights and the ways in which it has been a site for sustaining these hierarchies. Um, and we may need to make fundamental structural institutional changes if we want to actually create equality in the United States. You have a very, um, I read an article that you wrote that's very interesting about your interpretation um, of the since it's a topic today, let's just jump into, uh, I was going to save it till the end, but you mentioned the Supreme Court, so you might as well talk about it now. Um, uh, Amy, Amy uh, Coney Barrett's uh, confirmation to the Supreme Court, you wrote an article, I think last month it was, uh, about that, and about uh, how interesting it was that, uh, that's how I interpret your article, that um, there are... Um, all kinds of uh, stories and interpretations about the effect that she might have on the Supreme Court. But one of the things that doesn't seem to be focused on so much, um, and, it, and, and I didn't listen to all the hearings, but I didn't hear it actually come out that much during the hearings either, uh, is, is her connection to, to the business world. Yes, one and, and what, it could mean, what it could mean for, for you know, for, for people who, you know, what, what that could mean for the Supreme Court. Yeah. Yes. Um, and, and one of the things that, that um, uh, I'm interested in is let's, in the same way that I want to be able to talk about the narrative of progress and the narrative of consistent hierarchy at the same time, I do also in the book argue for something that, that black feminists have, have long advocated, which is holding issues together and trying to think about them at once. Um, and, you know, there's been a lot of uh, concern about Amy 
Coney Barrett's uh, nomination for the Supreme Court in terms of uh, uh, health care. Certainly, a lot of uh, the senators on the Democratic side of the aisle were deeply concerned about what might happen to the Affordable Care Act. Also, around reproductive justice and and what might happen vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, Roe v. Wade. And um, but there are other issues that um, those uh, two issues seem to you know uh, push to the sidelines and. Um, two of the most important ones are one, um, you know, and, and Sheldon Whitehouse did from Senator from Rhode Island did talk about this and he gave a long um, uh, presentation on how dark money has uh, affected the courts in the United States and um, the ways in which there are, um, uh, we don't know the exact details of this, but we can identify corporate donors and in particular, um, you know, a lot of dark money is tied to um, fossil fuel interests, you know, the, including the Koch brothers and, and um, the interests of uh, pollution and uh, climate change denial. And, of course, very famously, Amy Coney Barrett refused to say that climate change uh, had uh, 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 human sources. You know, she uh, stated um, that uh, she, you know, had no settled opinion about this. She had no opinion about about climate change, which is very shocking if you're an alive and alert uh, person um, at this time. Um, and because so it sort of contains the element of denial, right? Yes, exactly, exactly. And it's also if you can't say this basic thing, which you know, a Nobel Prize was awarded for this um, in you know in the two thousands about the scientific consensus, um, then you're either in denial or um, uh, don't pay attention to the world, and neither of those is good for for a Supreme Court justice. Um, uh, and um, uh, so those corporate interests are very important. There are a whole series of of legal cases that that are of concern, including discrimination in the in the workplace. Senator Harris, you know, was concerned about 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 some of um, her decisions um, around this question. Um, and uh, just basic union rights and workers' rights, you know, this long process of uh, moving the courts in conservative, in a more conservative direction um, that the Republican Party has been engaged in has been very dedicated to undercutting um, uh, uh, the labor movement generally and, and unions specifically. Uh, and then the other big question uh, for the Supreme Court coming up will be the status of the administrative state. What is the status of uh, regulations that flow, for example, out of the Clean Air Act um, uh, and environmental protections? And I actually think that this is another big area. And if we make the connection between corporate interests, dark money and polluters, and um, these questions that are supposedly uh, more technical about the administrative state, what we will find is the possibility that all kinds of protections for the environment will be um, uh, uh, ruled out of bounds on on this on a more technical basis, and I think that's very dangerous. Um, so, you know, the thing that I'm interested in is all of this is tied up around gender and sexuality. You know, it's tied up around a sense that what Supreme Court justices are conservatives are about is about. Uh, delivering uh, uh, conservative justice to justices to conservative evangelical white Christians. And that may be one part of the transaction, but there are all these other parts to talk about as well. Your, your book, um, by the way, let me just uh, reiterate for those of you who might have just joined us later in, uh, in the hour. 
This is Johanna Wild Oak, and you are listening to Wild Oak Living here on Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, KZYX and Z. My guest today is Professor Janet R. Jacobson, and she is and her we're talking about her most recent book called The Sex Obsession, Perversity and Possibility in American Politics. And speaking of American politics, one of the things that uh, that you discuss uh, is um, and and you 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 sort of um, break your your or or group your your argument into into four different sections. One of them has to do with the religion. The other one has to do with morality and materiality, uh, the social aspects, and and something. Uh, you, you call it stasis, which I, I still want to talk about as well. But the interesting thing that I thought um, in terms of the influence of, uh, of, the obs- of, of sex obsession and, uh, uh, on, on politics, it's, uh, you know, we, t- we generally tend to associate uh, it primarily with, uh, with, the, with the right, uh, not just the religious right, but the right in terms of, you know, the political right. But you, you also make some very good cases that it, it extends into the, the liberal realm as well, even though it might be a less conscious uh, thing there. Uh, a less, a less, you know, people might be less conscious that they're actually basing their thinking and their ideas and, and their policymaking uh, on on uh, on uh, sexual obsession, let's just call it that. Um, so I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about that because I thought that was very interesting because it goes beyond sort of our stereotypical assumptions about about uh, who is impacted. Yes. So one of the things I, I became interested in is even though um, there are religious conservatives for whom uh, questions of gender and sexuality are primary issues. Uh, perhaps even single voter issues, um, that wouldn't matter so much if these uh, claims about gender and sexuality didn't play out in uh, mainstream politics and even in liberal politics uh, in particular ways. And so what I did was uh, track uh, gender and sexuality in relation to all different kinds of issues um, from the 1990s, from the Clinton administration, through the George W. Bush administration, through the Obama administration, and into the Trump administration. Um, and what I found was that gender and sexuality were um, f- present and, in fact, sometimes formative for social policy in one, all of these administrations, which was a, a first uh, a very important finding, both Democrats and Republicans, and around a, a range of issues. So if we look, for example, at, at poverty, um, I start out by, by thinking about uh, uh, Clinton's role in um, uh, what became known as welfare reform, a bill that was passed and signed in 1996, and, but had been a signature where of uh, Clinton's campaign where he had promised to end welfare as we know it. Um, and what I found is this is a major change to economic policy in the United States. The, the existing program in the 1990s, uh, Aid to Families with Dependent Children, had actually been part of the, developed out of the Social Security Act of um, 1935. So it was a longstanding uh, piece of uh, economic structure uh, in the United States. And um, uh, but what the arguments about it, and this is true not just of Clinton, but in, um, I read all of the congressional record on both the House and Senate side, um, the focus was on, you know, 
what was everybody referred to as teenage pregnancy and which uh, Bill Bradley, who was then a senator from New Jersey, pointed out was code for young, poor women of color. Um, and that this combination of race and gender drove the debate. I did it, what we used to do was called coding, which we still do coding, but we used to do with highlighters where you would highlight when are people talking about sex? I made that pink. Uh, when are people talking about economics? I made that green. Um, and it was all pink. There was very little green, very little discussion of economics and, and changing this, the economic structure of the, the state. Um, and out of that came, in fact, a policy that was carried forward, which was the idea that the way to end poverty was through marriage promotion. So the, the United States has spent millions and millions of tax dollars on promoting people to get married and stay married because that's supposed to uh, and poverty. And there's, there's no evidence that this actually works. Um, and that in fact, it probably is the reverse, which is people can get and stay married if they have the economic support to do so. Um, but we nonetheless have classes and various other um, incentives and, and the like um, uh, for marriage promotion. And this was carried through not just the Clinton administration, the Bush administration, but the Obama administration as well. Um, and that sense that we could end poverty through gender and sexuality by people getting and staying married as opposed to through economic policy um, is one of the things that that is sort of central to the argument of, of the book. And uh, I go on to look at immigration. Criminal justice is gendered in a different way where the focus is often code for young um, uh, men of color, young black men and and. and um, uh, men of color and, and that sense that, that the ways in which race and gender play into policymaking is part of what I try to track in the book. And, and just to, just to uh, um, track back to what you just said about um, uh, welfare reform, reform um, you know, in, in, in addition to the focus on, on marriage, there was this, there was this sort of basic assumption that, uh, at least that's what it looked like to me. Uh, you're basically responsible for your own for your own welfare, and and the solution is going to work. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Uh, and 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 we do. You know, we claim to care about children a lot in this country, and yet we do so poorly in terms of figuring out how they're going to be cared for. Right. And that that sense of well, you must go to work. So who's caring for your children? And and one of the things that feminists have long argued, and this goes back to you know the 1970s, the idea of wages for housework. But that you know, or uh, the 1990s, there was a slogan: "Every mother is a working mother." Like the ways in which um, you know we do the labor that keeps our society moving is again gendered. It's raced. Who's expected to? Um, make sure that things are happening, you know, as I, as I say, um, you know, with this idea of personal responsibility, the people who are least responsible for their own lives are the richest people in our society. They have service people, they have personal assistants, they have people who do their dry cleaning, they feed, they clothe them, right? They don't do anything for themselves. Um, and yet we see those people in our mainstream political discourse as somehow personally responsible, uh, when in fact, they often have cadres of people who make their lives go. Um, and what we see on the other end are people who have to work two, three jobs in order just to be able to make rent um, and support their children. And, um, you know, when it comes to health care or catastrophes, you know, people have to quit their jobs to, to care for their relatives, et cetera. Um, so this sense that there is something called personal responsibility um, and that it, it, 
the people at the top end of the economic spectrum are personally responsible and the people who are, um, uh, you know, variously trying to make ends meet are less so is just wrong. Uh, and, 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 and as you already indicated, uh, the, main, the main weight of that assumption or the consequences of that assumption, you know, land squarely on the shoulders, mostly squarely on the shoulders of women and single parents in general. Yes, that's absolutely right. And, and you know, so one of the things, uh, this is sort of to, to uh, um, you know, jump to the end of the book, but I, I talk about justice from the ground up. And what I mean by that is, how can we create a society in which those questions close to the ground, how do we care for our children? How do we get through the day? The questions that many people are facing in a new way in this pandemic, um, that those questions would be the center of social policymaking. Um, so that instead of, uh, you know, sort of top-down sense where people who have a lot of power and who are supported in various ways in their lives um, and get a lot of help, whether it's in the form of social policy tax breaks, their mortgages or, um, uh, you know, other forms of, of uh, social support that, that have historically, um, you know, helped uh, people at the top of our um, uh, hierarchy. Um, let's flip that around and, and have social policy be really focused on what does it take to get through the day when you don't have a lot of resources and how can social policy help who don't have a lot of resources to be able to get through the day and do so in ways that are for sustainable for the environment um, do so in ways that it involve building housing that is not just single family housing that that is one of the you know most resource intensive ways of trying to um, house human beings and creates creates uh, a society of, of, of separate little right. nuclear entities as opposed to communities Yes, exactly. You know, and then one of the things that I find um, uh, ironic is that it's often, you know, sort of, um, you know, conservatives who are deeply concerned about an overly individualized society that is, um, uh, you know, has lost a sense of community. And um, uh, in fact, it's conservative social policy that really drives the sense that you're responsible for yourself and the best thing you can do. Um, is create uh, one of these small units in a single-family home uh, that um, may get various forms of uh, social support. Um, uh, and, um, you know, we really could be focused on trying to build communities that were sustainable. And that, that's what Justice from the Ground Up is about. It's about um, asking the detailed questions about getting through the day that would allow us to think about how could communities actually be built. So instead of just exhorting people, be more communal, we would think about um, the infrastructure that's needed to support those communities. You have a, a, a really wonderful, um, one, one of the things that, that I, I, uh, I love talking about, and it's actually the main reason I do my show is because I love talking about solutions. Mm. Uh, and you have you have a, a, a great chapter where you already mentioned it uh, you know when you talked about justice from the ground up you have a great chapter at the at the end of your book um, where you present your conclusions uh, and where you present uh, you know solutions or or and and directions that we could be heading in to make a difference um, and you call that chapter con con sorry my dog is getting ready to bark at another airplane <laughs> so shh. Um, you call it melancholy utopia, and and again, there's a lot in just those two words. But I'd like to start out talking about your solutions and conclusion chapter just by talking about those two words and what they contain for you. 
Yeah, I mean, and one of the things that, that um, uh, there, there are two things about the way that utopias are usually imagined that I was trying to get at by adding the word melancholy. Um, one is that most utopias um, are create a world in which everyone is happy um, by taking the problematic people or whoever is perceived to be the problematic people out of the equation, right? So um, uh, there's a famous early feminist, 19, early 20th century feminist uh, book called Herland by Charlotte Perkins Gilman, in which the men just disappear, right? They're just removed. And um, one of the things that is that any any um, social imagination in which people have to be removed is, I would argue, a, a dangerous imagination and not one that we want to support. Um, but what that means is when we think about utopias, we have to think about um, uh, ways in which all different kinds of people might be able to pursue their, their goods, their social goods, their life goods um, in different ways. How do we actually sustain that sense of difference even in a utopian um, imagination? And um, that's one side of it. I'll come back to that in just a minute. And then the other is that life involves loss. Um, it can involve all kinds of losses. Sometimes, you know, my mother uh, died just uh, at the end of last year, you know, those sort of generational losses and sometimes other losses. And um, in my own life, my uh, partner of many years um, had a bicycle accident in 2003, uh, uh, suffered a spinal cord injury and, and has been paralyzed. And that was a major life change. Um, and um, so one of the questions that she asks, she's actually, actually written a book about this experience, is how do you live on, you know, in the face of loss? Um, and so I've been involved in disability activism a lot over these um, years. And one of the things I learned from disability activists is that their idea of utopia, their idea of what's called universal access or universal design, in fact, has to take into account all different kinds of things because there's all different kinds of disabilities. Um, so, you know, the first time uh, we went together, my partner, Christina Crosby, and I to the Society for Disability Studies, you know, it was a hotel. It was great for Christina. She's a wheelchair user. The halls are long. There's lots of elevators. It works fine. But for people who have any kind of uh, environmental disability that involves um problems with chemicals, you know, I mean, uh, hotels are, you know, full of cleaning chemicals. And so that can be a very hard place to have the conference. And so one of the things that um, universal access talks about is how do we think about um, trying to pull together these very different needs that might be contradictory and create a world that, that can be good for a lot of people like having it at a hotel where there could also be outdoor sites, just as a as a um, one example of how you try to work through that. Um, and so, uh, utopia doesn't, in that sense, resolve all problems. It doesn't make everything right. It you know, it's not uh, happily ever after. Um, we have to live on in the face of loss. We have to live on um, uh, in continuing to work on our differences. Um, uh, and in one way, you know, as I say, the struggle for justice goes on and therein lies the hope, the fact that we will never achieve perfect justice in one way uh, gives us uh, uh, encouragement to, to keep going, to keep trying, even um, as uh, sometimes in uh, this year, 2020, uh, when things have looked quite dire, um, that our uh, uh, one way of living is by uh, uh, asserting hope even while recognizing the dire nature of the world's uh, current situation. And you also mentioned a, a word, uh, 
or a concept that, that I've explored quite a bit in, in my radio programs, and that's the concept of, of grieving, grieving for loss, uh, grieving for, you know, for, for, for the victims of violence, grieving for all the people who are impacted by the very policies, you know, that, that, uh, that people are trying to change. Uh, you know, as, and in terms of uh, holding, holding that, being able to hold that, that the same time as as being able to sustain hope uh, to to make to make it to make things different. Yeah, I think that's very well put. That grief are not opposed, right? That in fact, um, being open to grieving and um, to recognizing loss uh, can be part of being able to sustain hope. And and in one way, grieving is very very hard. You know, uh, attending to loss. Uh, you know, the temptation to uh, you know just uh, push it to the side can be very high. Um, but it, the denial is also very very hard, right? To to not be able to acknowledge what's happening around one, to not be able to just talk directly um, about the ways in which, um, uh, you know, 2020 has been a terrible year and, um, you know, more than 200,000 people have died um, in, in um, uh, this pandemic in the U.S. alone. This is, this is a real reason for grief. Um, and it also can be a call to action. And, and so for me, being willing to be open to grieving, to melancholy, to not having to produce in my field, you know, ethics is often oriented towards solutions, which is one of the reasons I went into it. Like you, I like to talk about solutions. Um, and yet um, it's often the idea that all solutions must solve all problems at once. And, and my experience is that, that, Solutions often are much more piecemeal. They're being able to put together um, a small thing here and perhaps a larger thing over there and, and um, you know, connect up, uh, you know, the food we eat to both uh, addressing disability and um, promoting health and promoting justice in urban areas and food des deserts and protecting the environment. Like maybe we could put those things together and, um, you know, by sewing or, you know, you can think of different metaphors for this, making connections, linking, um, we could build a, a world that is more just overall. Um, and so that's what gives me hope. You know, I know many people who are doing uh, whatever the work is that they think is most important and, and at whatever scale, it doesn't have to be at a global scale in order to make a global difference. Yeah, each of us in our own lives every day can make a tiny bit of difference. It, it yeah, all adds up. I, yeah, I, I really think that that's true. And one of the ways it can add up is by, you know, and this goes back to your point about community. One of the ways it can can add up is by making communities, right? Um, so uh, the, my first book was on alliance politics. And what I was interested in there um, is, oh, how can we actively make connections rather than hoping that people, you know, who work on the environment can come to see the importance of supporting uh, working people, uh, but rather how can we actively do that? How can we talk to people who um, have different views, not just in some kind of liberal conservative view, but um, across various social differences, race, class, gender, sexuality, et cetera, and also on different issues. How can I, as someone who's interested in, um, for example, I'm part of a project at the Barnes Center for Re Research on Women right now on housing um, and housing justice. Um, and it turns out housing and the environment have a lot to do with each other. You know, we mm -hmm. 
um, you know, cut down forests to make farms, and then those farms are made to grow housing for these nuclear family units. Um, these are not connections I had thought about, and these are, um, you know, I can now, as somebody who's worked on questions of housing, um, and the rent is too damn high, um, uh, I can, you know, start to talk with people who are interested in uh, sustainable farming, for example, that if we had smaller farms, uh, you know, one of the ways we could have more smaller farms would be uh, by changing ho housing policy so that um, um, we could protect land that is otherwise turned into subdivisions and made to grow houses. Um, you know, these are questions that are interesting and they're, it's really interesting to talk to people who work on these different issues. And um, by doing so, you make connections that, that could actually make a difference. And renewable energy plays into that as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and, and, and this is, this is, I mean, one of the exciting things that has happened over these past several years is that nuclear energy, renewable energy has finally, it seems, uh, you know, found its place uh, in a broader uh, mainstream discourse. And uh, that's very exciting. I, I did, uh, not because I had any great political consciousness, but when I was in, um, uh, you know, sixth grade, 1972, I did a a uh, thing on solar energy for a science fair that involved a big newsprint where I tried to get the angles of the sun right in relation to solar possibility. And, and the idea that it's taken all these years to develop this technology um, kind of shocks me. But I'm glad that it's happening now. And there are ways in which, again, you know, making different kinds of connections than just the electric grid that has been made for us, that was made for us in the 20th century. You know, what are the ways in which my neighborhood, for example, could, instead of me going off the grid and having all the energy producing things in my house, I have, I have solar panels, but um, would we want to have a more micro grid? And this, in other areas of the world, people are really working on this, where we could have um, smaller um, uh, power grids that would uh, connect up some people, but that would not, for example, fail uh, where something happens, you know, in one area of my town and I don't have power for a week. Um, uh, so, you know, these are all really, really, really interesting questions that this, again, the idea of justice from the ground up of utopias that don't solve all problems in one fell swoop but that in fact are made by connecting across difference. That's, that's what the book is really going for. Yeah, I, 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 and, and in, terms of, in terms of hope, what you talked about before, um, pe people, people always marvel at, at, at my sense of optimism and my sense of hope, you know, and especially this year, which has been such a challenging year for all of us. And, you know, my, my basic, my basic um, assumption, and I'm wondering what you think of that, is, you know, in order to make positive things happen, you have to have a positive vision. You can't create a positive, positive vision by thinking negatively. That's I, my... I, I absolutely agree with that. I, I think that there is, my, from my perspective, as someone trained in ethics, I think there's even a sort of a moral responsibility to um, uh, develop a positive vision, to do the active uh, uh, practice or work um, in order to develop that positive vision. I was... Um, uh, listening to a webinar yesterday that's on what's called transformative justice, which is uh, ways to address uh, 
harm, the, the doing of harm, including um, issues like domestic violence and sexual violence, uh, without involving uh, the police or the carceral state. And one of the things that they were talking about, and these were um, uh, uh, two longtime activists, Mimi Kim and, and uh, Shira Hassan, who were talking about the only way to be able to learn how to do this is to practice it. Um, you know, that one of the ways we make a better world is by trying things that this sense of, you know, the need to practice social justice is not just you need to actually do it, but also it takes practice. Um, and so that sense of building a positive vision by trying to do things differently. Um, and I've had the good fortune of being involved in social movements that where we I've seen this development over time where, um, you know, whether it's technological change, learning what um, would make for sustainable energy, you know, doing the development of that, that takes, you know, different tries. The technology is, you know, uh, you know, developed slowly and then, um, you know, can start to take off or whether it's uh, practices that help social relations, forms of mediation, interventions that, that can help when someone does harm um, in ways that can actually change what's going on rather than just um, uh, in some way punishing, you know, the person who has done harm, you know, these things take, uh, practice and learning and social learning. And, and, um, so for me, part of what ethics is about is participating in those processes, um, that create a positive vision and a, a different way of, of, uh, being able to see what might be possible in the world that one of the things we're constrained by, um, and this is where the, the um, to go back to the title of the book, The Perversity and Possibility comes from. One of the things we're constrained by is uh, our sense of what's politically possible in the United States. Um, and I'm not, I'm very interested in making things actually happen so that, you know, my utopia is melancholy, right? So I'm not just like pie in the sky kind of person. Uh, but I also believe that uh, our narratives about what's possible um, are constraining and overly narrow, and they push us into um, uh, arguments that just go back and forth and, and remain stuck. Um, and so part of what I'm interested in, and this is the perversity part of it, is if we do things in ways that may seem a little perverse, um, uh, you know, live different uh, differently than the normative understanding of, of how life should go, can we open up different possibilities? Um, can we think about uh, things that seem impractical, can we make them practical? Can we think about uh, different ways of living that, in fact, many people do living in community in different ways than uh, just communities that are organized around, uh, uh, you know, a sexual couple. It's very interesting that we uh, pretend that sexual politics is a private thing. It's not involved in um, our political life. And yet so much of the world is organized around a sexual couple. And we, we could live in all different kinds of ways. Um, it doesn't have to just be around that. And we might be able to care for children more, more easily. Um, and so for me, that kind of uh, perversity of being open to things that are outside of the norm is what creates a possibility for different positive visions. And you just closed the circle because we started out by talking about perversity and decided to put that off and now you just returned us to it. Oh, that's good. And I said, we're getting close to the end. I hadn't even realized we, we are so long. That's right. We are. We only have about a minute and a half left, which is why I wanted to give you a chance to, 
you know, to make some closing remarks, maybe offer website information or any kind of contact information that you'd like to offer to our listeners? Sure. So um, the I do have a website. It's um, uh, JanetJacobson.org. And I'm just going to spell it for you because my name is not the usual way. So it's J-A-N-E-T-J-A-K-O-B-S-E-N.org. Um, and that has um, some of the pre-writing that you've talked about, Johanna, and also some projects that I was involved in, the transnational project that you mentioned at the beginning, and um, uh, other projects, the housing project, other projects at BCRW that are in the book, um, and a lot of them are about solutions. So if that's the part you're interested in, there's a button in the, the center of the website that says projects, and you could go and, and um, learn more about those. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I mean, I'm just very glad that uh, uh, on this day in 2020, we seem to organically come back to the possibilities of positive visions, and that that's pretty exciting. Yeah, I think that's that's the the, the silver lining of the tragedy that's happening. At least I hope so. <laughs> I hope so too. Okay. Thank you so much, Janet Jacobson. Janet Jacobson, my guest, is Professor of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies at Columbia's Barnard College, and we talked about her book, The Sex Obsession. Uh, and uh, again, the website is Janet Jacobson. Is it .com or .org? .org, yes. Janet, Janet Jacobson.org, and Jacobson, as, as, as Janet said, is spelled J-A-K-O-B-S-E-N. Thank you so much for being on Wild Oak Living today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Me too. Thank you for having me.